At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. This morning, we're going to be continuing a sermon series we began a number of weeks ago called God With Us. And in this series, we're preparing for the Christmas season by remembering a very famous nickname or title that Jesus had. This is a a nickname or a title that came first in Isaiah chapter 7. It was reiterated in Matthew chapter 1, and that is the name or title Emmanuel. That is a Hebrew word that is translated into English, God with us. And so what do we mean when we say that God is with us at Christmas time, and what difference does that make in our lives. Well, we're going to see uh, part three in this series this morning as we look at John chapter one, verses 14 through 18. But before we get there, I just want to ask you all a, a quick question. And that is this, how many of you want to give good gifts for Christmas? If you want to give a good gift for Christmas, let me see your hand. Most of you rose your hand, okay? Uh, so that, that's, that's, that's part. Now, let me ask you, how many of you don't want to just give good gifts? How many of you want to give great gifts this Christmas? Okay, a few more hands have gone up. We're, we're, we're escalating here. Now, not, not only great gifts, but how many of you want to give a life-changing gift this Christmas? I mean, a few hands are up. And the reason why only a few hands go up is that we know how hard that actually is. It's difficult to give a life-changing gift, isn't it? I mean, I hate to break your bubble, but Alexis December to remember is not a life-changing gift. No, no sweater that you give is a life-changing gift. Kids, I'm sorry, no gaming system that you might receive is a life-changing gift. No Lego set is a life-changing gift. The only thing I can imagine that would truly be life-changing is if you're getting engaged this Christmas or you got engaged at a previous Christmas. Maybe that, I'll give you that one. Or if, if you had a child that was born on Christmas Day, that, that would be something that would fall into the category of life-changing. But beyond that, it's pretty hard for us to imagine that. Now, I, I say all of that because the reason why we give gifts at all at Christmas time is because we understand Jesus to be the ultimate gift. But friends, as we think about it, Jesus is not just a good gift. Jesus is not just a great gift. Jesus is a life-changing gift. And let me take it one step further. Jesus is an eternal life-changing gift. Amen? And so how do we echo that? Well, it's just a a mere shadow of such things when we give gifts to those that we love. But at Christmas, we remember the life-changing, the eternal life-changing gift that has come to us through Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean when I say an eternal life-changing gift? Well, hopefully, we'll understand a little bit more about what that means after we look at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. So if you've got a Bible, turn there. I want to read these verses for us. And then after reading these verses, I'm going to back up and we'll see a couple of things that will help us understand the life-changing eternal life-changing nature of the gift of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, friends, in these few verses, I want us to see two very important things today. So what are they? First thing I want us to see is this. Jesus reveals God to us. Jesus reveals God to us. Now, we see this as we look at the very first parts of John chapter 1, verse 14. He begins and he talks about the word. And in order to help us make sense of what he means when he says the word, we need to go back and look at the verses we looked at last Sunday in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We learned that John says that there is this one that is the word, and the word is God, and the word is eternally God. And he makes clear that this word that is God, that is eternally God, is none other than Jesus himself. The reason why John uses this title of word, uh, we've understood last week, is because in the the world of the first century, they used this word, word, to talk about the principles or the things that held the universe together. And in a Jewish understanding, that is God who has spoken the world into being. And so when John begins his Christmas story, he goes all the way back to eternity past, and he says, Jesus is God has eternally existed and created all that there is. Now, if, as we remember that notion and we think about that reality, we need to then go on and, and really ask another question. If Jesus has eternally existed, there's never been a time that Jesus wasn't already around. Then what in the world happened in Bethlehem? What happened in Bethlehem? Or even better yet, what happened in Nazareth in the region of Galilee? The reason why I say better is because Jesus came to this earth in human form, not when he was born in Bethlehem, friends, but when he was supernaturally conceived in Nazareth, where Mary lived. For nine months, Jesus resided inside of Mary's womb, fully God, present in that moment, so that even when Mary sees her cousin Elizabeth Elizabeth's child, John the Baptist, who was still in utero himself, what did he do? He left in her womb. Why? Because God in human form was in Mary's womb. An amazing experience. And so what do we understand to have happened? What changed in Bethlehem or even better in Nazareth in Galilee? Well, that's what John seeks to explain for us in verse 14 that we read just a moment ago. See, he says that what happened in Bethlehem, what happened in Nazareth, was the Word became flesh. God, who had eternally existed, poured himself into human form. That's what happened. Jesus added to his divinity, humanity. That's what happened in Nazareth. That's what is talked about with his birth in Bethlehem. It's the arrival of the God who had always existed in human form. Now, this idea of the word becoming flesh, you know, it's interesting. It would, theologians have, have spilled thousands and thousands of words trying to explain that dynamic. 
But God inspires John to communicate this great truth in just three words. Word became flesh. Now, if that's too economical for you, if you want a little more of an explanation, God inspired the apostle Paul to explain it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. He says, who, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what happened in Nazareth? What happened in Bethlehem? Well, Jesus did not give up his divinity, but Jesus poured his divinity into human form. Now, we understand this because Jesus was always God. He just added humanity to the mix. Rather than staying in heaven and saying, I'm just going to stay here and experience all of the privileges of heaven, Jesus humbled himself and took on a human body that would one day be able to die. That's what is meant when it says that the word became flesh. Now, we think of this idea of the word becoming flesh. What did Jesus take upon himself? In his humility, when he came to this earth, what did he add? Well, John tells us in a number of different places in his gospel. He added the ability to become weary. Jesus could get tired and fatigued. Does God get tired? No, God does not get tired. But do humans get tired? Let me ask you, do you get tired? Yes, we get tired. It's a part of our our, our humanity. It's a part of our limitation. Jesus humbled himself and took on a body that could become weary. He tells us that in John 4, verse 6. At the end of a long day, it felt like a long day. Not only that, but he could become thirsty. Jesus declares this both at the, to the woman at the well in John 4, 7, and also on the cross in John 19, 28. Can God become thirsty? Well, no, but when he added this human body, that body could become thirsty as well. He also wept. He also wept. He experienced the full gamut of human emotions so that when his friend Lazarus dies in John chapter 11 and he sees the suffering on the faces of Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, Jesus weeps with them. It's a part of his identification with humanity. Does Jesus ever weep with us? Yes, when we mourn loss, I believe that this is a picture of the way that God wants to embrace us and relate with us. He understands. He added this humanity. He lived in our world. Not only that, but he also bled on the cross. Jesus bled and he also died on the cross. He died. These things were possible, not just in divinity because God can't die. He's eternally existed. But by adding humanity, by pouring his divinity into a human body, Jesus was able to die. And so Jesus became flesh, and he became flesh and dwelt among us. I think this is remarkable. It's something that we sometimes forget. It would be remarkable if God poured himself into a human body and lived anywhere on the earth. 
It would have been remarkable and gracious if God had had poured himself into a human body and took up residence in far northwestern Washington state. A few years ago, we went on vacation up there, and I never had understood why people could believe in Bigfoot until I went to northwest Washington state. And there are just these vast expanses of land where there are trees and water and mountains and no people. It would have been remarkable. It would have been gracious if God had had poured himself into a human body and then taken up residence in northwest Washington state only with a GoPro. That would have been amazing. But that's not what he did, friends. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He moved into our neighborhood. He came to the cradle of civilization, to the middle of the world with people everywhere he went. That tells us about his heart, doesn't it? It tells us about his purpose. He came among us. He came to be with us. And because of that, the people who saw him and interacted with him got to give testimony to his glory. They got to see his divinity pouring out through his humanity. They got to see the miracles that he worked. They got to hear the messages he taught with such authority. They got to experience those things firsthand. When John says, we have seen his glory, he meant it. The same John who wrote the gospel of John also wrote the epistle of 1 John, and he begins that epistle this way. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it. Friends, Jesus lived a public life so that many eyewitnesses could detail what he, had, what he did. They could detail his glory so that you and I would understand who he is and what God was really like. Just a, a remarkable thing. And as we interact with Jesus, as we see him on the pages of Scripture, We get to see not just God the Son, not just someone kind of like God, but we get to see God himself. And if we've seen the Son, Jesus says in John one fourteen, he says, we've also seen glory that is from the Father. This is very similar to what Jesus himself says in John 14.9, when he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So that when we look at Jesus and we look at his example, we are seeing God himself in the flesh. There is no distinguishing the character or essence between father and son. They are are differentiated inside the Trinity. We talked a little bit about that last Sunday. But in essence and in character, they are the same. You cannot divide them that way. And so John says, we have seen Jesus. We have seen the glory of God. And as he gives testimony to that, he says, he understands that he is full of grace in truth. What a great pair of words to describe the fullness of God. Grace and truth. We live in a world that wants to give us one or the other. Most people in our lives want to give us one or the other. They either want to give us grace or they want to give us truth. They want to just give us grace. They just tell us everything is awesome no matter what. But someone that says that all the time, you begin to think, they're not being honest with me. But in God, when he shows up, he is both gracious and he is truthful. 
This is the God. This is the glorious God that has come to us in Jesus Christ, loving us enough to call us out on our sin, but gracious enough to make a way so that we might be forgiven. Just a remarkable, remarkable thing that we see happening here. Now, John the apostle was not the only one who was able to bear witness to this, but there were many others. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, there are seven different people, at least, who affirm the divinity of Jesus. They affirm the the glorious presence of God with Jesus. One of those is John the Baptist. John uh, 1.15, he begins this, and uh, we saw it says, John bore witness about him. So John the Baptist is one who recognized the divinity of Christ. But also Nathaniel in, in John 1, and Peter in John 6, and the blind man who was healed by Jesus in John 9, Martha in John 11, Thomas in John 20, and Jesus himself in John chapter 5, John chapter 10, and numerous other places all gave testimony to the divinity of Jesus. See, when we understand Jesus to be God, we are not just taking the word for one person. We're taking the testimony of dozens and hundreds of people that then recorded what they saw and experienced so that we might be convinced that Jesus is God himself. See, Jesus came to us and has made God known to us. That's what verse 18 tells us. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. This is a a, a nod to the Old Testament when the times that people saw an an expression of God, he would just allow them to see the, the backside of his glory as it passed. But John said, in Jesus, there is a revelation of God's glory that we were able to see and hear and touch and behold. Jesus came to reveal God to us. He came to explain God to us. He says in in specific terms here, he has made him known. This phrase, made him known, is a phrase that we get our English word exegesis from. If you wonder how you might describe the style of preaching that I have, people would call it an exegetical style. In other words, we look at the words here and we exegete them. We try to explain them so that you understand what they actually mean. That's what we do when we open God's word and we preach from the stage. In the same way, Jesus came to exegete God, to explain him, to to make it plain, to have us understand who God really is. Friends, this is what Jesus has done for us. And so let me ask you, is this a life-changing gift? The answer is absolutely yes, but how? Well, I want to mention a few ideas. They all kind of go together, but three different statements. First one, God created us and he wants us to know him. He created us and he wants us to know him. You know, understanding that this universe was created with order and purpose is actually the determination of good science today because there's just, it's way too complex to be an accident. And humanity is is very special inside of the created order of the universe. And so we understand a lot about humanity that way. And and the Bible fills in the gap and lets us know that we were created by God. And we go, yes, amen to that. But even beyond that idea, it's possible that God created us, but then wants nothing to do with us. 
It's possible that God created us as an experiment, and then he says, okay, go and just live your life, do your thing, whatever you want to do now. You're on your own. But that's not what we see by the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We see God coming to be with us. Not only did he create us, but he wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to know him. I love what Leon Morris says in his his commentary. He says this, he says, John's logos, that is the Greek word for word, does not show us a God who is serenely detached, but a God who is passionately involved. John's logos does not show us a God who is serenely detached, but a God who is passionately involved. God is passionately involved with us, friends. He wants us to know him. We see that. A second thing that we see, God can be known. If, if Jesus reveals God to us, we need to know that God can be known. He's not just some mystery but he's someone who can be known. Now, this doesn't mean that we can box up everything that there is to know about God and package him in some way. God is greater than the sum of our thoughts. But by coming as Jesus, we become aware that God can be known and the things about God that he wants us to grasp and wrestle with and understand, he has revealed to us in Jesus Christ. You know, when you read the scripture, when I read the scripture, I have a time every day where I have some personal Bible reading. And one of the things that I will do before I read is I say, God, what do you want me to learn about you from this? What do you want me to learn about you from this? This Christmas and in the year ahead, as you read the scripture, may you have an expectation that you might get to know God, what he thinks, how he wants you to live, all of those things by coming in and looking at the character of God and the person of God in Jesus Christ. God can be known. But a third thing that we need to see is that God came for us, that God loves us. You know, when we are separated from one that we love and they are in need, we move towards them. There was a a wonderful moment where there was a little boy named Kevin who was back in Chicago and he was separated from his families at the holiday. And when his family realized that they were separated from Kevin, what did they do? They came running to his aid. They came running to his side. Now, some of you are going, what is he talking about? It's this classic Christmas movie, Home Alone, right? Um, But when you think about that experience, it reminds us that when we are separated from one we love and one we love is in need, we move towards them. What do we make of the fact that Jesus took residence in our neighborhood? reminds us that he loves us. He loves us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ came for us. Christ died for us. Friends, the God who loves you can be known and he wants a relationship with you. We're reminded of that amazing truth when we think about how Jesus reveals God to us. But there is a second thing we need to see. And this second thing is found in verses 16 and 17. And it is when we talk about Jesus upgrading our operating system. Jesus upgrading our operating system. Now, when I, when I say that, some of you are, are nodding in agreement because you live in that world. Um, there are a few engineers out there, are there not? 
There are a few people who have recently upgraded your operating system on your phone or on your computer, but others of you are curious what I'm talking about. So let me just explain it a little bit. The operating system is what is installed on your devices that enables the applications to work with each other and interact with you. That's, that's what an operating system is. So that on a Dell computer, it is Windows. On a Mac, it is Mac OS. On an Android phone, it is uh, Android operating system. And on an iPhone, it is iOS. Those are the background base level software that enables your applications to interact and enables you to interact with them. And we're used to those operating systems being upgraded over time. What we see in Jesus coming is this amazing gift that he has upgraded our operating system, that he's upgraded our operating system. He's upgraded the way that we interact with God. Now, where do we see that? Well, in verses 16 and 17, we we understand this when he says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In these two verses, we see John describing two different operating systems that governed the way that humanity interacted with God. In the Bible, those operating systems are called covenants. And so there was an old covenant and there was a new covenant. The old covenant is what we think of inside of the Old Testament. It came as the law that was delivered through Moses when he went up on the mountain, he got the Ten Commandments, and then all of the sacrificial system that was attached to that, that was the path through which people could interact with God. That was the old covenant. But John here also mentions that there is a new covenant. And that new covenant he identifies as a covenant of grace and truth that came to us through Jesus Christ. This is the covenant that we know of as the new covenant or the New Testament that is found in the relationship that we can have with God through Christ himself. Now, these are referenced inside of verse 17, but what is the connection that verse 16 gives to us? Well, verse 16 tells us that both of those covenants were expressions of God's grace. They were expressions of God's grace. The old covenant of grace was God graciously reaching out and revealing this system to the nation of Israel of the law, the Ten Commandments, and the sacrificial system attached. That was a gracious initiation of God. He did not have to do that, but in his grace, he did it. He gave an operating system for the nation of Israel to interact with him. In the New Testament, we have a a second operating system, a different operating system. It was an operating system that also was an expression of grace. God did not have to come as Christ. He did not have to die on the cross as the once and final sacrifice for sin so that we might be forgiven and connected to God forever. But he chose to do so. It was an act of his grace. But this little word upon, I think, is fascinating. If you look at that word throughout Greek literature, that word oftentimes is translated, not upon, but it's translated replacing, replacing. And so that would have this understanding to say that the old covenant of God's grace that he gave to the nation of Israel has been replaced now by a new covenant, by a new operating system that is found through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And like any upgrade, this upgrade was better. Now, when I say better, what do I mean by better? Well, Ron Allen, a Hebrew scholar, helps us understand this a little bit. 
He says, what God showed himself to be through his revelation in the Torah, so now Jesus shows himself to be through the incarnation. And what was the Torah? It was not handcuffs, but Yahweh's pointed finger, graciously marking out to the redeemed the path of life and fellowship with him. The point of John 1.17 is not then bad, now good. The point is rather then wonderful and now better than ever. See, friends, Jesus has upgraded. He has given us a new, fresh, and better expression of God's grace by establishing a new operating system governing our relationship with him. This is what is talked about in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, when it says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Better promises how? Well, under the old system, they had the law, but they couldn't live up to the law. And so they had to offer animal sacrifices again and again as a reminder of their guilt and their need for forgiveness. But why do we not do that still? Have we gotten to where we no longer sin? Of course not. We still sin, but why do we not offer animal sacrifices? Because we have an operating system that is governed by better promises. Jesus came as the once and for all Lamb of God to die once on the cross for our sins so that we might be forgiven and connected to God forever. And then we would have his Holy Spirit given to us as a gift, not just to one people, not just occasionally, but God would give his Holy Spirit as a gift to any who have trusted in him as a permanent promise of God's presence with us. See, friends, we have a a better covenant, a more excellent one that is based on better promises. And because of that, I love what he says in, in, in Hebrews 8, 13. In speaking of this new covenant, Jesus makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. By saying that it is made the old covenant obsolete, what he is saying is there are not there there are not now two ways to come to God. There's not the Old Testament way through sacrifices in the temple or the New Testament way of trusting in Jesus as our Savior. But what he is saying is that Jesus, by upgrading the operating system, has now made one way for all people, regardless of background, to be connected to God forever, and that is by placing our faith and trust in him. Jesus has upgraded the operating system. From his fullness... We have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so my question for you today as we wrap this up is this. Which one is your operating system? What, is, what are the principles that are governing your relationship with God? I think there's probably three different options of how people are responding. One option is really an open source option, an open source operating system. What I mean by that is that you're just making it up as you go. You're just living the life that you want to live. You're going to suck all of the the, the stuff out of this life that you can, and you're going to just let the consequences fall where they may. That is a way that we can live. God, in in his mercy, has given us choice and the ability to make those choices, and we can choose to just live our own life. But that operating system won't connect you to God. And that operating system won't prepare you for life after death. 
And that operating system also won't leave you whole today. You know, with our lives, we can do lots of things, but if we do many of them, they'll just leave us broken. You know, my, my laptop here that's powering these slides, that, that same laptop um, was created to do these amazing things. I can use that laptop as a hammer, but if I use it as a hammer, eventually my laptop will break. Friends, you can do many things, but if you do many things outside of the parameters of God's best for you, it will leave you broken. One option is to live with that kind of an open source understanding. But a second option is that we could try to live under this old operating system of religion, believing that if we just do enough good works, do enough good deeds, that somehow God would accept us. That is a way that many people live. But that way, if it ever was in operation, is in fact been made obsolete. It's been put out of business. It's no longer the way to actually connect with God. How is it that we connect with God? Not through an open source plan, not through some old religion, but it's ultimately through a relationship of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Understanding that he is God in the flesh who died on the cross for our sins. And if we receive him, he has given us the right to become children of God, even to those of us who have believed in his name. And if we are trusting in him, then we have the hope, not only for eternity, but also for today, as he has given us his spirit to empower our will. Friends, which of these operating systems describes your life? If, if it is either of these first two, let me strongly encourage you today to consider placing your faith and trust in Christ and living a life connected to the God who created you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thanks for this opportunity. Thank you for this, this truth that you have shared with us today through your word. May you give us the faith now to embrace it. May we live our lives on the principles of the gospel. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 